The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bible with me and open up to Daniel chapter 5, Daniel chapter 5. And as you're turning there, let me ask you a question. What would it be like if God crashed your next party? <laughs> what would it what it would be like if God joined in uh, whatever celebration you're planning next, unexpected, unannounced, uninvited? What would the Lord interrupt if he showed up without warning? What would he find you engaged in? What condition would you be found in? What would be left written on your wall if a hand from heaven carved a message for you in the plaster above your head? Lord willing, it wouldn't look like what we're about to read today in Daniel chapter 5 because what we're about to read in this chapter is absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. But it's totally avoidable. (laughs) It was totally avoidable, completely unnecessary for this to happen. And the sad reality about chapter 5 in Daniel is that if the king of Babylon paid attention to the handwriting in the Word, he would have never had to experience the handwriting on the wall. It's as simple as that. But some of us like to learn our lessons the hard way. And for some of us, it's a lesson learned too late. And that's a sad but all too common reality. If you were here for our study of Daniel last week, you'll remember that chapter 4 ended with those chilling words, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Do you remember that? Those those are the, the final parting words of King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who spent seven years mowing the grass of Babylon with his teeth because he refused to acknowledge that the Most High God is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes. Those words that God is able to humble those who walk in pride should have been etched in the minds of every leader who would follow Nebuchadnezzar. And certainly, it should have been etched in the mind of every Babylonian king who followed Nebuchadnezzar. You know, before they they tucked their, their princes, the princes of Babylon in at night, it should have been with the reminder, don't forget what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> It's like the kind of story they could have told their sons around the campfire. You know, instead of ghost stories, they could have told Nebuchadnezzar stories. And it would have been even more terrifying because it was all true. It should have been a haunting reminder to anyone who would dare ascend the throne, don't forget what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And the clear warning would have been, we don't play games with God. Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that shall he also reap. The king of heaven must be taken seriously, and we ignore him at our own risk. Remember the ox king. Your story doesn't have to look like his story. You can avoid the fate that he suffered. And if only his son would have listened to his father's voice, if the son of Nebuchadnezzar took seriously the warnings he was given, there would have been no need for Daniel chapter 5. Didn't have to be this way. But what we find in chapter 5 is a total disregard of every lesson that Nebuchadnezzar attempted to pass down. 
In chapter 4, in verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. But down in chapter 5 and verse 4, his son drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. In chapter 4, verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar says, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? But in chapter 5 and verse 2, his son gives orders to do according to his own will and treated the vessels of the Most High God as if they were nothing rather than him being nothing. Chapter 5, verse 2, Belshazzar tasted the wine. He gave orders to bring the gold, the silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar's father had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself. In chapter 5, His son exalts himself. All the hard lessons that were learned in one generation were completely tossed out and trashed in the next, which is all too common. In chapter 5 of Daniel, we learn what happens when God's word is ignored by one who knew better because he was taught better. But as one philosopher said, the only thing we learn from history is that we've learned nothing from history. So, So what happens when God crashes the party? We're about to find out. And you might wonder, why did God treat Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar differently? God is not obligated to exercise the same amount of patience with everyone. Chapter 4, God exercised an incredible amount of patience with Nebuchadnezzar. And over time, Nebuchadnezzar grew in his understanding of God and his character until finally Nebuchadnezzar broke. God broke Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. And chapter 4 ends on this high note of praise to the king of heaven. It's a joyful ending. But in chapter 5, the expectation is that his son should have learned from his father's example. There's no need to repeat all of those same lessons over and over again. You should know better now. You were taught better than this. And that's the response that Daniel gives to Belshazzar. In chapter 5 and verse 22, he says, Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all of this. We don't have to repeat all these lessons over again. You already know this. Don't expect God to go over all the same lessons again and again with you in the same way that He did with your fathers. Because now you already know. You already know. Nebuchadnezzar had 12 months of warning before judgment fell. Judgment fell on Belshazzar in one night. The judgment was swift, and it was permanent. Let's take a look at this sad account in Scripture. We'll start at verse 1, Daniel chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It says, Belshazzar the king held the great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Let's uh, bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you today, and this is just such a sobering warning. Father, I pray that we would take heed. Father, I pray that we would learn. Father, I pray that we would learn from your word so that we wouldn't have to learn from the wall. 
Father, we thank you that you have uh, given everything that we need for life and godliness in your word. Uh, Father, this word is such a rich treasure. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. It gives us guidance for life. Father, why would we turn anywhere else? This has all that we need. So, Father, I pray that you would help us today, Lord, as we give attention to your truth. And, uh, Father, I pray that you'd use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. At this point in our story of uh, the book of Daniel, we're introduced to a new character, a king by the name of Belshazzar. And before we work through the details of this account, it'll be helpful to give you a brief introduction to Belshazzar in order to set the context for you, the historical context. Uh, Belshazzar, according to verse 22, is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel 5.22, Daniel says, Yet you, his son, meaning Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. But it's important to point out that Belshazzar is not a direct son of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the words for father and son are often used in Hebrew and Aramaic to speak of a descendant rather than a direct father-son relationship. You know, we even see this in our New Testament when Jesus is called the son of David, the son of Abraham. In the book of, of Matthew, there were many people in between, uh, but Jesus was in the line of David, in the line of Abraham. So he was called the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in the same way, Belshazzar here was in the line of Nebuchadnezzar. But it's a, a bit of a, a crooked line that gets us to Belshazzar, so uh, you can hold your seats and get ready for this one. Uh, what we find is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar served as the king of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, until he died in 562 B.C. He ruled for a total of 43 years. It was um, a singular rule, but... After his death, the kingdom of Babylon began this rapid decline down this twisted path. Nebuchadnezzar had a son who reigned after him by the name of Evil Moradak. And parents, if you're looking for a good name for your son, you know, evil is a pretty good way to go there. He's also known by the name Amel Marduk in history, but we find him in 2 Kings chapter 25, 27, and Jeremiah 52, 31. And uh, the son of Nebuchadnezzar here, Evil Moradak, is uh, showing kindness to the exiled Judean king. So apparently, uh, there was something that was passed down to Nebuchadnezzar's son regarding the kindness to be shown to the Jewish exiles. But this reign only lasted two years because he was assassinated by his brother-in-law, Nereglisser, who took the throne in 560 B.C. Nereglisser ruled Babylon for four years, died leaving the throne to his son, who happened to be the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, Labishi Marduk, in 556 B.C., Labishi Marduk, and I expect you all to know this for the quiz, uh, was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, only reigned for two months before he too was assassinated in a conspiracy, and the throne was given over to a man by the name of Nabonidus. Nabonidus had no family relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, but in order to make a family connection, he married the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar and had a son through that marriage who was named Belshazzar. And if you thought your family tree was a mess, you know, welcome to Scripture. I mean, how, how would you like to tell this story at your next family reunion? You know, I had an uncle who murdered one of my other uncles. And uh, then my cousin was murdered by a group that was connected to my father. And he later married my mother. And uh, that's, that's the story of how I got here. I mean, that's, that's the kind of stories they would have told as they, you know, gathered around the, the campfire and roasted marshmallows. You know, they would have been talking about how our, our family killed one another. But this is, this is the kind of life that they lived, which again makes it so miraculous that Nebuchadnezzar was able to keep the throne for seven years with these vultures flying around who are seeking to take the power. 
But, but this is what you have in the, the line of Nebuchadnezzar, just murder going on everywhere. But Belshazzar happens to be the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar through his daughter. Okay, that's the point that I wanted uh, to, to come across here. Uh, but if you look at uh, verse 12 here, first, uh, uh, excuse me, back to, to Belshazzar again. All I was trying to say there is that Belshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's uh, grandson. But his mother, his mother uh, was considered the queen mother of Babylon. And his father, Nabonidus, was the primary ruler of the Babylonian kingdom. Actually, uh, Nabonidus uh, spent most of his time away from the city of Babylon, spent 10 of 17 years as a king in a place called Tema, which is about 600 miles away from Babylon. And he gave Belshazzar the responsibility of ruling the city of Babylon while he was away, okay? So that's how Belshazzar gets to be the king. His father is still living, and Belshazzar is the king of Babylon. And actually, for years, uh, there were people who doubted that Belshazzar even existed uh, because uh, the biblical record was the only record that they had of Belshazzar, and they knew that Nabonidus was the last king of of Babylon. It was believed that the the Bible made up this history. Actually, there was a, uh, a commentary that was written in 1850, a British commentary, Uh, that said that Belshazzar is a figment of the writer's imagination. 1850, this is what this commentary writes. Four years later, a cylinder was found that spoke of the connection between Nabonidus and Belshazzar. So, you know, if he waited four years, he wouldn't have looked like an idiot saying that the Bible was was wrong. And actually, in this cylinder, it says, O moon God, preserve me, Nabonidus, to give to me long life, and as regards Belshazzar, my firstborn son, my dear offspring, put in his heart reverence for thy high divinity. Speaking about his false gods, but it shows the connection between Nabonidus and Belshazzar. The Bible is a book that stands up to the critics, and the more you study this book, the more convinced you are of its trustworthiness. But it was uh, Belshazzar who was ruling over Babylon as the vice-regent or a second king, and that'll be important later. But Belshazzar and I call him in our outline, an insolent sinner or an insolent son. The word insolent means to, to show rudeness, to be arrogant, to lack respect. It's not just to be sinful, but to be blatantly sinful, openly, unashamedly sinful. And that's what Belshazzar was. If you flip over to the book of Psalms real quick, uh, flip over to Psalm 19, just want to show you something just real quick as we think about Belshazzar and his character. In the, the book of, of Psalms, in Psalm 19, David speaks about two kinds of sins. And if you look at uh, verse 12 here of uh, Psalm 19, he says, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. So he speaks about sins that are hidden, sins that are hard to detect. You know, both for ourselves and for, for others. You know, maybe it's the sins of the attitude, sins of the motivation. And he says, you know, who, who can discern them? They're not always easy to, to spot. So he says, acquit me of my hidden faults. Forgive me for these things. You know, who, who knows how many times I violated the law of God in these ways? You know, Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, he says, I do not even examine myself for I'm conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted. The one who examines me is the Lord. Even if I can't detect a sin in my own heart, the Lord can detect it. So these are these, these hidden sins that he says, Lord, forgive me for these hidden faults. But then he speaks about another kind of sin. Look at verse 13. He says, also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. What are presumptuous sins? 
Those are the sins that we commit with a high hand, raised fist towards heaven. These are the sins of defiance, the sins of arrogance. You know, I know this is wrong, and I'm going to do it anyway. And I dare you to try to stop me. You know, you might even wave a flag and call it pride. That's what David says he wants to be protected from. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. The sins that I know are wrong, and I just fall into them anyway. I'm just going to do it anyway. These are the life-dominating sins that can take you over and bring you under. And that's the kind of sinning that Belshazzar was engaged in. Open-handed, high-handed rebellion towards God. And back in Daniel chapter 5, we see this king, Belshazzar, engaged in gross and flagrant sins in full view of a multitude. You know, he had at least a thousand people viewing him for this one. And what characterized his sins? Number one, what characterized his sins was drunkenness. Number one, look at verse one. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. He puts himself on display, you know, drinking party, let everybody see what I'm doing. This is more than just taking a glass of wine with a meal. In fact, the, the food for the feast isn't even mentioned. It's not about like, you know, I just take a glass of wine with the meal. Uh, this, this is the, the center of what they're doing. They're gathering together for a drinking party because it's clearly not about the eating. Five times it's mentioned in the first four verses. Verse one, he was drinking wine. Verse two, Belshazzar tasted the wine. Verse two, he ordered vessels so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink. Verse three, his wives and concubines drank from them. Verse four, they drank. There's no doubt that this is a drinking party. And he's putting it out there before the multitude. He's got a thousand viewers for this one. That's what characterized his sin. Just, just, just flagrant you know, drunkenness is what characterized his sin. What else characterized his sin? Lewdness, lewdness. There's evidence from the excavations in Babylon that the drunken parties were often accompanied by lewd sexual expressions. In addition to the drunkenness, there were uh, excavations where there are scenes depicted from these drinking parties that are nothing less than pornographic. Sexual sins seem to follow right on the heels of Drunkenness. You got drunk and then you engaged in sexual sin and it was all too common for the kings, their wives, their concubines, uh, that they would bring these women out to provide entertainment for the multitudes. If you remember, that's why Queen Vashti was banished from Persia. Remember that in Esther? In chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, On the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry, uh, King Ahasuerus, his heart was merry with wine, he commanded his seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king, Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. You know, they got drunk and then they brought out the women to show themselves off for the entertainment of the crowds. And what was true in Persia was true in Babylon. The women would have been brought out for their entertainment of the drunken crowds. And that's what characterized Belshazzar's sin. It was drunkenness, it was lewdness. What else characterizes sin? It was blasphemy. Blasphemy. Look at verse 2. It says, When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar's father had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. When, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah uh, back in 605, and there was also subsequent 
uh, uh, approaches to, to Judah where he took uh, more vessels. But he took these vessels of God as a trophy of war and he put them in the place of the house of his God. It was actually, uh, for, for him, considered a place of honor. Even for a pagan king, you know, he recognized that these vessels weren't to be used as common dishes. But that's not what Belshazzar did. He, he had no regard for what was considered sacred. He sought to desecrate the very vessels that should have reminded him of what Nebuchadnezzar uh, turned around to see that this is the true God, the, the, the most high God. It should have reminded him that, that my grandfather regarded this God as the most high God, but he took these same vessels and said, bring those same vessels out. He knew exactly what he was doing, characterized by blasphemy. I'm going to, to take these vessels that belong to God and I'm going to, to do what I want. And also characterized by idolatry. Look at verse 4. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. He was leading the way in corrupt, idolatrous worship. And what they praise happens to be some of the same elements that were part of the, uh, the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You know, gold, silver, bronze, iron, in the same order. They praise the gods of material elements with utter disregard for the, the living God. What insolence. Rude, arrogant, lack of respect. David says, this is what I want to be cut back from, those presumptuous sins, those sins of, of pride. We may not be tempted to praise the gods of gold and silver and iron, but we are tempted to do what we know in our hearts is wrong, aren't we? You know, I know it's not right, but, but right now at this moment, I just don't care. I, I know I shouldn't take this drink right now, but right now, I really don't care about that. I know I shouldn't click on this link, but you know what? Right now, I don't care about that. Yes, Lord, I know that these words shouldn't come out of my mouth, but, but right now, I'm just so frustrated it's coming out anyway. And we allow these presumptuous sins to rule over us. And we can do that even in the face of incredible danger because of these sins. It would be helpful to place this drunken party in its historical setting. We know the exact night that this party took place in ancient history. The, the events that took place here happened on October 12, 539 B.C. And what makes this historical setting so significant is that Belshazzar knew that the Medo-Persian army was surrounding Babylon at that very moment. Just two days earlier, October 10th in 539 B.C., Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father, was defeated at a place known as Sippar, and the Medes and Persians co continued their march toward the city of Babylon and surrounded the city with thousands of Medo-Persian troops. But Belshazzar was so calloused to his father's defeat and so confident in the city's defenses that he could plan a party at the same time that the enemy was stationed right outside of his gates. And some say some of the troops showed up even two to three months earlier. So, so he knew that there was a, an approaching army gathering right outside of his doors. But he believed his city to be so secure that they were unconquerable. Nobody can take us down. According to archaeological excavations, the capital city of Babylon was a rectangular-shaped uh, city surrounded by a, a water-filled moat, double walls around the city. The double walls were... 25 feet thick with 40 feet in between. That's a total of 90 feet that the enemy would have to get through in order to get into the city. And the walls were 350 feet tall. 
had a total of 260 towers, 160 feet apart, so they could see everything moving on the outside. So, so here Belshazzar is on the inside of uh, what he considers this impenetrable fortress, and I'm not even worried about what's going on on the outside. I'm going to stay in here and I'm going to party. Like, like, nobody can touch us, you can't touch us. According to the Greek historian Herodotus, the city had enough supplies to sustain it for 20 years. I don't care how long they stay outside. I've got 20 years worth of supplies in here. In addition to that, the city had a continual water supply because the Euphrates River ran right through the middle of the city, through the gate, right into the city. They had all the water that they needed. So Belshazzar believed that he was invincible. Who's going to touch us? The city of Babylon was like the Titanic before it hit the iceberg. They believed that they couldn't sink. We are unsinkable. And they partied right in the face of imminent danger and threat. They ignored all the warning signs. And the, the question for you is, is that you? <laughs> are you ignoring, ignoring the, the warning signs? How, how many times do you have to be told about the dangers of sin before you pay attention? Cain was told, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. And it's desirous for you. <laughs> Cain, you need to pay attention. It's, it's right outside. I'm tell, it's right outside the gate, Cain. I'm trying to give you warning before it happens. But instead of Cain heeding the warning, he was devoured by the beast of sin. And I wonder how many people are like that here today. Ignore the warning signs. Belshazzar ignored all the signs of danger, plowed right ahead, and partied himself straight into the judgment of God. They didn't have to wait for the police to show up because God shut the party down himself. Single-handedly, literally. (laughs) Only took one hand to shut the party down. And he did it with nothing more than a post on the wall. Number two, we have the inscribed wall. Look at verse five. It says, Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. This is, this is like a scene straight out of a horror movie, right? A bodiless hand appears out of nowhere and begins to scratch on your wall. And we, we might assume that the hand was holding on to something to write with, but that's not what the text says. It says that the fingers began writing. That's even more creepy, right? What, what's pictured here could have likely been fingers, fingers literally carving and scratching a message into the plaster of the wall. You know that when God originally wrote the Ten Commandments, he didn't need a, a writing instrument to do it, right? Just was written with the finger of God. And here you have the, the fingers that are writing a message on the wall, the plaster of the wall. Archaeologists have actually excavated a large hall in Babylon that's 55 feet wide, 165 feet long, 9,000 square feet. Event planners say that six square feet per person is a good rule of thumb for a standing crowd. So this room would have held at least 15 100 people by today's standards and twice as much probably back then. This is a large room that's been excavated. And listen to this. It was complete with a white plastered wall. They found the place where this event would have happened. The very walls where this message would have been etched in. And the lampstand would have been placed next to the person they most wanted to illumine. And who was the spotlight on? It was on Belshazzar. He was the one who's drinking in the presence of the, the thousands. They, they got the spotlight on, on him. All eyes are on him. And I can just imagine the king, you know, arrogantly looking over his party that he planned without a care in the world. You know, who cares if the armies are outside? We're impenetrable. And then this drunken stupor. And then all of a sudden, a few 
chips from the plaster start falling on his head. And he's like, what is that? And looks up and sees a hand scratching a message into the wall above his head. It would have been terrifying. I mean, nobody became sober more quickly, right? King's face grew pale, verse 6. His thoughts alarmed him. His hip joints went slack. His knees began knocking together. His face grew pale. The blood drained from his face. He became pale. His knees knocked together in terror. Some say he might have even fainted. And his hip joints went slack. One, one author literally says, it says literally that the phrase is, the knots of his loins were loosened. And some commentators actually believe what is meant by that is that he soiled his pants like just so terrified that it's like everything just came loose. A moment before, this drunken king was brave enough to, to call out the vessels of the Most High God and we're going to drink from them. And now he's soiling himself. And who does he call in this moment of terror? I mean, who else would you call? You call in the liars. That's what you do. You call in the liars. Verse 7, the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers. You know, call aloud means to... to, to Uh, To scream with strength. He's screaming out for help. Bring in the conjurers. The Chaldeans, the diviners. You know, haven't we seen enough of these clowns already? But here they come back again to to do what they can't do because they can't do anything. King spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription, explain its interpretation, to me shall be clothed with purple. Purple was the color of royalty. Have a necklace of gold around his neck, a symbol of royalty. Have authority as a third ruler in the kingdom. That would have been the highest position he could have given. Why why the third? Because Nabonidus was the first. He was the second. So he's offering the third. I'm offering you the highest position I can possibly give you. The third position in the land. I'll give it all to you if you can just tell me what this writing is on the wall. All the king's wise men came in, verse 8, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation. And this is fascinating because the writing is written in Aramaic, which would have been like the trade language, the common trade language of the day. But they can't read it. (laughs) I don't know if it was in the script that's just too difficult to read, or God just blinded them from being able to make it out, or you know, if they were intoxicated themselves. I mean, we don't know why they couldn't read it, but they couldn't read it. And it's like God hits them right where it hurts the most in their pride. They they, they were proud about their knowledge. The, The Babylonians would have prided themselves in their knowledge. They were experts in facts and figures and numbers and language. And now they can't even read the trade language of the day. It's like the common trade language and I can't make it out. King Belshazzar is finding out that none of his resources are going to be any use to him. When real calamity strikes, uh, you're not going to be able to go to, uh, to the gods that you've made for yourself. All the wisdom of his counselors put together is useless and empty. The wealth in his gold is valueless for this revelation. The greatest position he can offer is worthless. All of his wives and concubines and the dancing girls will bring him no comfort right now. Not even his drunkenness can erase the message that's before him on the wall. And that's all the world has to offer us. The glory, the gold, the girls will be worthless on the day of judgment. None of it will save you. When Belshazzar figures out that his conjurers and magicians can't make it out, whatever strength was left in him, Left him. (laughs) Verse 9, then Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler. His nobles were perplexed. The insolent sinner is alarmed by the inscribed wall, but he finds some comfort in the inquisitive queen. Look at verse 10. 
Verse 10 says, The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the queen spoke out and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. The, the word traveled throughout the, the palace. Eventually it reached the queen mother. And we know that this was not one of his wives because his wives, you know, who would have had the, the rights of being a wife and the concubines who didn't have the rights of being a wife, they're all together with them. So this is, this is the, the queen mother. This is, this is his mother. This is the, the, the wife of Nabonidus. And, and what makes sense of this language is that this queen mother is the one who walks in because she's able to do with what even the, the wives was, weren't able to do, to walk straight into the presence of the king. If you remember, the, the wives of the ancient world had to be granted access. You know, we know that from the history of Esther, but uh, this woman enters directly into the king's presence and speaks boldly. It says, O king, live forever. Don't let your thoughts alarm you. There is a man in your kingdom. And it seems like the queen mother has to introduce Belshazzar to Daniel again. 23 years have passed since Nebuchadnezzar's death, and by this time, Daniel would have been about 80 years old. He entered Babylon as a young man in his teens, and now this is 66 years later. So Daniel is in his early 80s by this point, and his days of usefulness to the kingdom seem to be behind him. But the Bible is clear that our usefulness to the kingdom is not diminished by our age. Amen? seems like in the, the midst of, of all this kingdom-changing hands and twisted family trees that Daniel was kind of pushed to the side and forgotten. But the queen mother says, I, I remember this guy vividly. <laughs> Listen to what she says. There's a man in your kingdom, verse 12, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father, illumination, insight, wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit Knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. If this was Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, she would have witnessed the events that took place with her father firsthand. She would have been familiar with Daniel's reputation. And if you notice the words that she shares about Daniel, they're the same words that Nebuchadnezzar shared. So here she's just repeating what she heard from her father. This, this, is, this is Nebuchadnezzar, his daughter, saying that I, I know about this man. And she even goes further than Nebuchadnezzar and piles on these descriptive adjectives, illumination, insight, wisdom. I mean, it's like every possible word that I can use, this is your guy. Like he, he's the guy to talk to, the naughty problems. She even refers to him by his Hebrew name. She refers to him as Daniel, which was a testimony to Daniel's God. Daniel is a name that means God is judge, and that's exactly what's about to happen. God is about to judge. Daniel may have had a minor role in the kingdom, but he was about to have a major role in Belshazzar's life. In chapter 5 and 13, Belshazzar calls him into his presence, the insightful prophet. Look at verse 13. And Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel? That, that Daniel? Who was one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I've heard about you. That a spirit of the gods is in you and that illumination, insight, extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought before me, brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not, like we didn't know that already, right? They could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give the interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you are able to read the inscription, make its interpretation known to me, you'll be clothed with purple, and wear a necklace of gold around your neck. You'll have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. 
One author says, think about the irony here. Daniel is the only one who can help Belshazzar, and he's been uh, making fun and mocking his God all night. (laughs) But now this, this is the one that you have to come to. You know, he thinks he can... You know, buy Daniel off here with you know the the gold and the the royal garments, but but Daniel's not interested in the money, and and truly godly people are not for sale. They can't be bought or swayed with material gain. I was recently uh, sharing a testimony with one of my family members, and one of the first questions he wants to ask me is, uh, "What do you think about Cruffalo Dollar?" <laughs> I was happy to tell him that uh, that he is a uh, False teacher who's motivated by greed and he has nothing to do with us. <laughs> One of the qualifications for Christian ministry is a freedom from the love of money, right? Why? Because if you love money, you will be bought by money. And people need to be silenced because of their love for money. Teaching what they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Daniel says, I'm not, I'm not in that group. I don't, I don't need your money, but I'll tell you the truth though. Verse 17, Daniel answered and said, before the king, keep your gifts for yourself. Or give your rewards to somebody else. You know, what good is a position going to be in a kingdom that's not going to be here anyway past this night? However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. But before he gets to the interpretation, he issues a stinging rebuke. King, you are an insolent king. (laughs) It's not just bringing insight. He's bringing in an indictment. He's an indicting prophet. Verse 18, he rehearses the a history lesson for the king. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him all the peoples, nations, men of every language feared and trembled before him whomever he wished he killed, whomever he wished he spared alive, whomever he wished he elevated, whomever he wished he humbled, which is a, a great definition of sovereignty, by the way, that, that you do whatever you want. Whatever he pleased, he did. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud, that he behaved arrogantly. He was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind. His heart was made like that of beast. His dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets, it over, he sets over it whomever he wishes. And again, here we have another statement about sovereignty. God does what he wants. And here's the indictment. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. You knew better. You were taught better. But you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought vessels, the vessels of his house before you, and your your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your very life breath and your ways. And you have not glorified him. Here Daniel exalts the sovereignty of God. The God of heaven, just like Nebuchadnezzar was sovereign over whomever he wished, killed whomever he wished, spared alive whomever he wished, elevated whomever he wished, humbled whoever he wished. God is also sovereign. And even your life breath is in his hands. You, you don't take another breath without God. Your life breath is in his hands, and your ways in his hands. And you haven't glorified him? <laughs> Romans one twenty one says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to honor as to glorify. Belshazzar failed to acknowledge that the life breath that he had was under the control of God. 
We know that Nebuchadnezzar looked up and started glorifying God immediately back in Daniel 4. He says, you knew all this. <laughs> you knew all this, Belshazzar. I didn't have to come and tell you any of this. You've not humbled your heart. You've exalted yourself. You've praised the gods of silver. You've not glorified him. And notice that there's no appeal from Daniel to Belshazzar that you need to turn. Why? Because it's too late. <laughs> you already had your chance. Like you've learned this, I don't know how long, how, how many years of your life have you learned this? Don't act like now you just need more time. You've rejected this all of your life. There's no call to repent here. King, it's over. It's over. It's too late. And it's a great reminder that the more light we have is the more accountable we are to that light. The more access we have to truth is the more accountable we are to that truth. And this is a truth that we find all over Scripture. Remember, Apostle Paul, he says this in 1 Timothy 1, he says, I thank God in verse 12 and 13. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. But listen to this. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Why was I shown mercy? Because I did these things out of ignorance. And I was shown mercy. In Acts chapter 17, Paul speaks to the the pagan idolaters on Mars Hill. He says in verse 29, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. He's saying God, God has overlooked these times and now he's declaring to you something different because now you have knowledge. God's willing to overlook your ignorance, but now that you have more light, he's declaring to you that you must repent. And the more light we have is the more we're accountable to that light. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus put it this way, the slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. You knew the will, you didn't do it, many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but a few. You'll, you'll still be punished, but it will be a lighter punishment. From everyone who has given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. If you know more, you're accountable for more. If you have more access, you're accountable for that more access. And let me ask you a question. Do you think this nation has been given much or little? We have more than 100 complete English translations of the Scriptures when there are some languages that don't even have one. Even if all of our Bibles were lost, we would be able to reconstruct our Bible from the books that we have about the Bible. It's incredible to think about it. The access that we have to truth. Not to mention radio, digital media, the internet. We have incredible access in this country, don't we? We walk around with the truth in our pockets. It's called a smartphone. And how many churches do we have? Even if there isn't a solid church in your community, you can drive to the next one. We've been given access to truth. But instead of a greater adherence to the truth, we're running in the opposite direction of it. I read this one article. It says, during the post-war, baby-booming 1950s, There was a revival of religion. Indeed, some at the time considered it a third great awakening. 
Then came the societal changes of the 1960s, which included a questioning of religious institutions. The resulting decline in religion stopped by the end of the 1970s, when religiosity remained steady. Over the past 15 years, however, religion has once again declined, but this decline is much sharper than the decline of the 1960s and 70s. Church attendance and prayer is less frequent. The number of people with no religion is growing. Fewer people say that religion is an important part of their lives. All measures point to the same drop in religion. If the 1950s were another great awakening, this is the great decline. We've had so much. And what have we done? We're we're accountable for what we have, right? We're accountable for it. How many of our children have grown up surrounded by the truth? Pressed down, shaken together, running over. You've grown up with the truth. There's a greater accountability to that truth now. You, You know more. You're accountable for more. It's a frightening thing to have the truth and turn against it. Jesus indicted the cities that most of His miracles were done in. Matthew eleven twenty one. 21. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. You guys have had the truth. You've had an abundance of it. Woe to you for all that you've been given and you haven't done anything with it. How many generations could that be said to you? Woe to you, Baltimore. Woe to you, Washington. For if the teaching had been heard in times past, which are heard in you, they would have repented long ago. We have so much. And in the case of Belshazzar, God said, okay, you've had enough. You've had enough. One commentator says, therefore, his judgment and doom were sealed. No pardon was available at all, for his conscience had become hopelessly seared, and his heart was judiciously hardened. The message written in Aramaic was only three words. First was repeated twice for emphasis. The literal message is numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Each of these Aramaic words were in the perfect tense, indicating that the matter had been firmly decided by God. What's the interpretation? Mene, mene, from the verb mena, which means to number, to reckon, the meaning God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, from the Verb tekal, which means to weigh. The meaning you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. With God's standard on one side and you on the other, you've come up short. You're a spiritual lightweight. A parson from the verb paras, which means to break in two, to divide, meaning your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. And Daniel apparently played a, had a play on words with the Perez at the same consonants of Persia. God is not just saying your kingdom is divided up, but your kingdom will be Persianized. It's going to be given over to Persia. Your number's up. You don't measure up. You'll be divided up. And God wastes no time in carrying out this judgment. On that same night, verse 30, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. It was October 12, 539 B.C. The most powerful nation in the world came to an end. History fills in the details. The Medes and the Persians built a dam or a canal on the Euphrates River, which flowed underneath the wall through the city. The dam diverted the water into a marsh, which allowed the water level in the river to fall. And the Medes and Persians were able to infiltrate the city by surprise using the riverbed. They snuck in, sang songs as if rejoicing with the Babylonians, made their way undetected to the banquet palace, 
And once inside, they killed the guards, threw open the gates, which enabled the whole Medo-Persian army to take over the city without a fight. And they assassinated King Belshazzar and conquered the city in one night. And who's there looking like royalty? (laughs) Who's there looking like royalty? Verse 29, Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck, issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. You know, this guy who's kind of been sitting on the sidelines for how many years, you know, now he shows up and, you know, the first thing that the Medes and Persians are seeing is like, hey, this, this is guy's royalty over here. We need to get, get, him, uh, get him to work, which is exactly what happened. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom, verse 31, at about the age of 62, and we'll learn more about that next time. God humbles the proud. God humbles the proud. The humbled were restored, and the exalted are removed. In Daniel chapters 2 through 7, there's a a parallel that happens in Daniel 2 through 7. In chapters uh, 2 and 7, you have a God who reveals mysteries. Remember when in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream? We'll find out later in Daniel chapter 7 that Daniel has a vision as well, and those two visions parallel one another. There's a God who reveals mysteries. In uh, Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter um, 6, those are also parallels. Chapter 3 talks about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how they had great faith. In chapter 6, we'll learn about Daniel and the lions. Then he had great faith. God rescues the godly. And then right in the middle, we have two other parallel accounts, chapters 4 and 5. It talks about how God reigns in majesty, how Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God, and Belshazzar was humbled by God. That's what's found right in the center of this kind of like parallel structure. Right in the center of this is a God who rules and reigns, the God who reigns in majesty. But you have two different ways that that can go. God can humble you and you can be restored, (laughs) or... uh, You can be humbled by God and uh, you can be removed. You could go one way or the other, but but you will be humbled. (laughs) You will be humbled. The the, the question is, is, uh, which which way are you going to come out on the other end? Are you going to come out praising God like, Lord, I'm nothing and you are everything and it's about your kingdom? Or are you going to come out, as Belshazzar did, struggling to hold on to his kingdom and raising his hand against God and defiance against him. There's something else that I didn't pay attention to here, but just, just really quick. This God who reigns and rules, he also shares that rule with those who are humble. Did you, did you, did you pick that out? In chapter 5, after Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, what happened to him later on? It says that his sovereignty was given back to him, right? He, he was able to finish out his, his reign, like, like the Lord restored to him a, an opportunity to continue to, to rule. You have Daniel here who's clothed with royalty. You know, this is a godly servant who, who, who is now put into a position where he's able to exercise authority. Those who are humbled, God allows them to exercise some authority. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 13 speaks about a resurrection that's to come, but as for you, go your way, 
the Lord says to Daniel, go your way to the end, and then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Over in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, lets us know that um, those, who, those who endure, he will also, we will also reign with him. There, there's, a, there's a reigning coming on the other end. If you remember the disciples as they spoke with, with Christ, Jesus Christ let them know that they would sit on 12 thrones and, and do what? They would, they would reign with him, right? But in Matthew chapter 20, when the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down, making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand, one on your left. Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to him, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant because they didn't think of the idea first to ask Jesus for it. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The point that I just want to make as we close here is we know that the God is the one who rules and reigns. He is the most high God. But those who humble themselves before God, those who are willing to serve others and not try to establish their own kingdoms, those are the people that the Lord rewards and gives opportunity to exercise authority. There is a blessing for those who are willing to humble themselves. So again, you have, you have a, a choice here. Are you going to, uh, to humble yourself and allow the Lord to reward you? Or are you going to be humbled? Be humbled by the Lord and receive nothing. It's not those who exalt themselves who find this kind of reward. It's those who humble themselves. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, uh, your word. Now, Father, we pray that you'd uh, allow your word to... Uh, to richly dwell within us. Now, Father, I pray that we would learn from the examples that we see here and just the contrast of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Now, Father, that we would learn from your word, uh, that we wouldn't have to learn by the experience of a handwriting on the wall, uh, by judgment falling upon us, Lord. Now, Father, I pray that we would learn by your word. Father, I pray that you would help us to, to humble ourselves, that we would recognize you as the, the most high God, that we would recognize that we are nothing, that we deserve nothing. And Father, it's only as we lower ourselves, that as we make ourselves slaves to the, those around us, that's when you lift us up. You're a God who exalts the humble and humbles those who are exalted. And so Father, I pray that you'd help us to remember that the way up is down. And Father, that um, there's a, a way to, uh, uh, to receive uh, rewards, Lord, and it's, it's not by grasping for them, it's by giving them away. Father, I pray that you'd help us to humbly serve you, Lord, and that we will continue to learn wonderful truths, Lord, as we continue to sink our teeth into this book. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. 
To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.